Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. And Kobus, for today, we're going back to your old stomping grounds at Stellenbosch University at the Center for Chinese Studies, where once again we are joined by Dr. Ross Anthony, uh, who has been on the show to talk with us earlier about Xinjiang and uh, Muslim and Islamic extremism. And today we're going to be talking about South Africa's relationship with China, Taiwan, and maybe even a little bit of Hong Kong. So welcome back, Dr. Anthony. Thanks. Um, and so today, as I mentioned, we're going to talk about South Africa's relations with China. Now, arguably, this is one of the most important uh, geopolitical relationships that the Chinese have in all of Africa, in part because South Africa, of course, is the uh, up until recently the largest economy. Uh, it is certainly a logistics hub. It is a manufacturing hub for Chinese operations. But it also has a very, very interesting history. And so before we get into the history of South Africa, China, we also want to talk very very quickly about China-Taiwan, and so I can just set this up for our conversation. So for those of you not familiar with the basics of modern Chinese history, uh, Taiwan used to be run by the nationalists, still is, and they used to run all of China up until 1949 when there was a civil war that Mao Zedong led a revolution against the nationalist government. The nationalists then fled to Taiwan. At the time, they claimed themselves to be the rightful rulers of all of China. Unfortunately for them, most of the world disagreed, and they did not have the majority of diplomatic recognitions around the world. One of the countries that retained recognition of China, uh, of Taiwan, was in fact South Africa. And South Africa's relationship with Taiwan was very, very interesting because up until 1998, when uh, diplomatic relations were transferred from Taiwan to China, Taiwan had this very special relationship in part because Taiwan and South Africa were both anti-communist. They were both, um, you know, small populations surrounded by very large hostile populations. So the white South African government, the apartheid government, surrounded by a hostile black majority, the small Taiwan nationalist population surrounded by a hostile communist uh, neighbor to the north. So uh, they had that bond. Well, that bond changed in 1998. And from 1998 to today, the relationship among all three has evolved. And Cobus, most recently, it just popped up in the news this spring. Uh, tell us a little bit about a little bit of a scandal, if you will, maybe, uh, that came up between South Africa and Taiwan. Yes, so um, the Taiwanese Defense Minister was visiting Swaziland, um, which is one of their few remaining allies in Africa. I um, mean, obviously, Swaziland is, is a very small country, basically surrounded by South Africa, um, and um, they were. He was visiting because the, the the King of Swaziland was celebrating his birthday, I think. Um, and uh, so he there was there was talk that he was um, supposed to to transfer in South Africa to another flight and then suddenly he took a charter flight to Burkina Faso which is another of, of Taiwan's dwindling allies um, and then so there was a lot of talk particularly in the Taiwanese press that that was because of pressure from Beijing that 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 Beijing put pressure on 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 the South African government to not allow you know, kind of him to to transfer in in a South African airport. This has subsequently been denied by um, by the Taiwanese defense uh, defense ministry themselves, who said that the charter flight to Burkina Faso was was planned ahead and there there was no such issue. But what it what it raised for us um, is this issue of 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 
you know, kind of what really, what is really the extent of Beijing pressure on South Africa-Taiwanese relationships? And this is exactly what what Ross um, and other colleagues at um, at the Center for Chinese Studies at Stellenbosch was talking about in a recent report called um, "South African Relations with China and Taiwan: Economic Realism and the One China Doctrine." So it was really it was nice for us to to combine the two issues. Um, Ross, I was wondering what you thought about the the flap around this this diverted flight and um, and what it revealed to you in, in you know in the light of, of the, the the bigger complications mm. uh, yeah I mean I, th- I think uh, it's always difficult to tell with these things I mean, occasionally China will come out uh, very overtly and say uh, they do not approve of X Y and Z that uh, Taiwan or some other contentious issue or, or interest group is pushing within Africa, but uh, a, a lot of the time it's behind the scenes and y- y- you're left sort of guessing as to what it may be. I mean, on the one hand, the fact that uh, there were uh, Chinese naval ships visiting uh, Africa this uh, for the past month or so and landing in South Africa this uh, last week, perhaps uh, uh, they felt that on this particular occasion that uh, their thunder might be stolen if an alternative Chinese government was passing through. I I mean, to me, it seems, uh, but it could, it could have nothing to do with that at all. I mean, to me, it seems quite quite a petty uh, thing. And uh, in, in my experience, um, China is often not that fussed anymore about what Taiwan uh, does, unless it's something overtly political. Uh, possibly because it was the foreign minister who was visiting uh, or merely stopping by in Johannesburg that that would have motivated uh, pressure from Beijing on the, on the South African government to change that. I mean, it, it's plausible. Um, you never know. You're, you really never know. So I, I wouldn't know which side to believe. Um, but certainly uh, um, uh, when it comes to the economic side of things, uh, Beijing is very hands-off when it comes to Taiwanese engagement. But uh, perhaps because it was a, a minister of the Taiwanese government, they felt compelled to act. But it also seems to me as if if they hadn't have said anything about this, it probably would have been less, it wouldn't have been on the radar at all. So the very fact of them lobbying to get this change brought it into the discourse. Perhaps that was a way of China letting... South Africa, no, it's weights that it carries uh, within South Africa. I don't know. These things are often well, black box. Let me, just let, get <laughs> let me put a theory out there for you, and I'd like to hear your response to it, mm. because it brought back uh, memories from, from me of a couple years ago when the Dalai Lama, he wanted to attend the birthday party of Bishop Desmond Tutu in South Africa. And mysteriously, mm. uh, the Dalai Lama couldn't get a visa. And 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 yes. really, now the South Africans will tell you there was a bureaucratic problem, and it was not because of Chinese interference. The Chinese said, "Huh? What? Us? No, we didn't have anything to do with it." But at the end of the day, uh, he didn't get a visa. And I think the concern that emerged in South Africa, particularly among academics and, and journalists, was South Africa's sovereignty is being impinged upon by the relationship with China, that South Africa as a sovereign nation should be able to decide if it wants to have the Taiwan defense minister transfer planes on his way to Burkina Faso. Great. That's our decision to do it. If the Dalai Lama wants to come and celebrate the birthday party with uh, Bishop Desmond Tutu, fine, they should do that. And here we have the concern of the big brother and, you know, determining who South Africa can interact with. Now, if South Africa is having problems with this, 
imagine what you know a small country like Botswana or or Ghana, relatively speaking, what they will be able to do in the face of Chinese diplomatic power and opposition. So I think that's the concern. What's your thought about that in terms of is this part of that kind of boogeyman type of fear that people have that China is exerting itself and stripping sovereignty away from a foreign policy of a sovereign government? Yeah, I mean, I think in a, in a way, it's not so much to do with the sort of robustness of the particular African country in question, but more to do with the intentions of the the leadership of that government. So, um, with regards to South Africa, and particularly with the the Taiwan research that we did, I mean, what we found quite fascinating was not so much a pressure from uh, Beijing as there was uh, eagerness amongst South African uh, political elites not to alienate China in any way. And so what you you kind of see is a kind of over-cautiousness on the South African side vis-a-vis imagining what may or may not defend China. And to err on the side of caution, you take a stronger measure as opposed to a weaker measure uh, and uh, yeah, with regards to the economic stuff, I mean, what we found so fascinating was that uh, uh, China doesn't particularly care what kinds of economic uh, engagements uh, um, uh, Taiwan has with South Africa. It's the political stuff. But from uh, the ANC government's uh, side, we got the feeling that there was this uh, sense that even uh, doing economic relationships with Taiwan might alienate uh, China, even though from China's point of view, this wasn't necessarily the case. So you had this sort of overcautious self-censoring on the uh, South African side, so as not to uh, in any way um, uh, risk uh, uh, relations, particularly economic relations, because I think there's a lot of uh, uh, money involved in this, uh, and so you, you found South Africa sort of being overcautious. And in, in that particular case, the sort, sort of self-censoring, the kind which you see within China itself, um, for people who visit there often, it's quite familiar. Um, with regards to the Dalai Lama issue uh, specifically, that one, I. I don't know, but I suspect that there was some kind of be- uh, uh, pressure from Beijing or the, the embassy here, or I'm not sure from where, but uh, there's, there's, there's an obligation amongst uh, the Chinese um, at, the, at the diplomatic level to put, to put pressure, to be, to be seen by these superiors as to be putting pressure on any government when the Dalai Lama visits, because from the, well, from the strictly Chinese um, sort of uh, ideological approach, it's the equivalent of having uh, Osama bin Laden come be your guest or something like that. So, um, uh, uh, and, and the vehicle, I think, in which this takes, and, and this is where you, you know, the transparency issue is not, uh, you, you don't know what's going on is that this possibly happens in party-to-party meetings. Um, and so one of the theories is that there was uh, a Chinese-exerted influence on South Africa uh, uh, to, well, not to deny the Dalai Lama visa, but to kick it into the long grass until the event had, had happened and, and nothing could be done about it. Uh, this happened uh, through party-to-party meetings between the ANC and the CCP, because, of course, these kinds of meetings again, are a kind of black box because you don't have to, um, there's no uh, pressure to be transparent about these sorts of things because it's not the government speaking, it's merely your party having talks with another party. Uh, so one, the Communist Party and the ANC uh, as a party will be having conversations. And uh, there's one theory that these are the sorts of channels through which this pressure is exerted. So nothing is visible at the level of media or public discourse. 
Um, but again, like with all of these things, it's you, you, because of the lack of information, you're left filling in the gaps with all sorts of explanations uh, as to why this happened. But um, certainly with South Africa, there is a pattern emerging of this sort of thing. And, and, and I guess that uh, makes it more credible to suggest that either A, the hand of Beijing is behind this, or B, an overcautious South African political elite eager not to offend China is doing it on their own accord, which of course from the um, Chinese point of view would be even better because they don't have to <laughs> do anything with the finger and it just happens anyway. <laughs> That's very, that is a very interesting point that you're making. Um, can, can you give us, like, did you feel that there is there some kind of shared culture um, between the ANC and the, the Chinese Communist Party that comes from the fact that they're both they both talk the same kind of socialist language in in a way. You know, kind of they they have similar kind of um, party organization. There's similar kind of call things, similar kind of things. You know, kind of there's there's a kind of a shared, uh, like co- you know, kind of communist background that that that, that comes yeah. in and you know, kind of just plays into, into both of them, and that that just makes it easier for them to communicate. Yeah, um, that's an interesting question because. Uh, if you hear uh, 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 officials speaking today, South African officials, the way they talk about their relationship with the Chinese Communist Party, it sounds as if they've been best friends forever. But um, uh, and 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 it, it seems almost intuitively that there's this organic political tie between the two. But actually, historically, there isn't. And and the and the reason for it is, is the Cold War, because uh, during the Cold War period. Um, Basically, Russia and uh, uh, China were ideological enemies forwarding different brands of communism. And one of the ways in which their uh, uh, rivalry played out was on uh, supporting African liberation movements, uh, various African liberation movements. And the thing was that if uh, the USSR supported one liberation movement, it meant that um, China couldn't be seen to be supporting the same liberation uh, movement. So they would have to support another one. And this led to some very strange bedfellows uh, which China had during the Cold War. So, uh, for instance, uh, Soviets had a heavy influence uh, on um, the MPLA in Angola, which was a sort of communist socialist leading party. So China actually uh, at one stage was backing UNITA, which is a more sort of pro-nationalist, Western-backed uh, uh, party. And um, you know, certainly when the NPLA came to power, it, 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 uh, relations were quite frosty with China for a few years, although that's been patched up. And in a similar vein, uh, because the ANC had significant support from the Soviet Union, um, China couldn't support the ANC. So they actually ended up uh, supporting the PAC. Uh, that's the Pan-African Congress, a more sort of radical branch of leftist uh, 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 politics in South Africa, which today are a very um, you know, obscure party. They, they they hardly have any presence whatsoever. And so uh, uh, historically, China didn't have a very organic relationship uh, with the ANC, although it was always a staunch uh, opponent of apartheid. It didn't necessarily translate into support for the ANC because of this particular uh, historical issue with the Cold War. Um, now, since uh, you know, 98, when uh, uh, contacts um, uh, official recognition between China and South Africa happened, and keep in mind, uh, South Africa, um, you know, became a democratic country with Mandela at the helm in 94. So we're still another four or five years before. Uh, as the ANC-led government actually switched to China. And uh, this is interesting because you would have thought, oh, well, they would have just uh, switched immediately. Why those uh, so many years? And that's an 
interesting story about Mandela's particular idiosyncratic relationship to these events, which we can discuss uh, possibly later. But um, uh, the other thing I want to say quickly is, uh, today, China and South Africa, I think, and the ANC and the CCP rather, one of the one of the interesting links is that both are uh, what we would talk uh, left-speaking, right-acting governments in the sense that both have the rhetoric of socialism and communism and to a degree still implement those sorts of things. But at another level are incredibly shrewd economic actors who, who seem absolutely, absolutely immersed in the global economic uh, market economy. Yeah. Uh, and I think in this sense there's a lot of overlap uh, 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 which is not so much a hardcore socialist one, although at the surface they might draw on these sorts of things. I think it's more uh, at that level where they, they really do see eye to eye. But, I mean, from my experience of speaking to the Communist Party Central Committee and getting a sense of how they engage with African governments, you know, gone are the days where uh, the party-to-party -party talks would merely between, be between communist, the Communist Party in China and, and exclusively socialist and communist parties in Africa. It's incredibly pragmatic today. The, the Central Committee, their research desks, uh, keep a close eye on who's going to win what election, uh, and be that a left-wing government or a right-wing government in any given African country, they will start to court and lobby that particular so government. it's much more uh, pragmatic. It's a high level of pra pragmatic. Yeah, it's yes, more yes, pragmatic absolutely. than ideological than it was in the earlier days. Mm. Now, let me just quickly yes, yes. kind of bring us up to the to the to the current day, current day here, and you mentioned this that. Um, how describe the relationship between uh, South Africa and China today, but not in terms of of economics, but in terms of the general importance that the two have for one another, and and so on the South African side, we see that um, Chinese are becoming one of the fastest growing source of tours tourism. We see it's becoming an export yeah. market for wine. We're seeing an export market more important in some ways than Europe for 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 a lot of the finished goods that come out of South Africa. For China, we're seeing uh, South Africa is the manufacturing hub. Uh, for automobiles, for yeah. high sense, uh, white goods, uh, any number of products. And then it's the financial operations hub for so at least Southern Africa, in, in Africa, for the Chinese multinationals. So how would you describe the South Africa-China relationship today and the importance that each have for the other? I think it's uh, I think it's a, a very important. I mean, obviously, uh, uh, China is South Africa's largest uh, trading partner, and uh, the, the ruling government seems to totally grasp this uh, fact and its importance and uh, don't really want anything to jeopardize it. Although that being said, I mean, both Mbeki and Zuma have, uh, have, uh, have openly stated a sort of caution with dealing with China in terms of, um, you know, bringing up these familiar arguments about it must, it must be a sustainable relationship and the, I think a bit of the term neocolonialism might have been thrown in the Mbeki era, although the Zuma administration seems to have warmed a lot more to China. Um, also, of course, you've got to realize that the unions, Kosati, uh, um, it's a union federation in South Africa, has an immense power and votership role within South Africa. And uh, uh, they, there's a tendency amongst them to be more anti-China, um, particularly because of uh, the role of trade unions in China and the perception of workers being exploited there and whatnot, and the, and the, the comparative power that the South African unions have. And so there might be a sense that uh, uh, ministers and governments in the South African side have to sort of pander to a degree to uh, these unions so they might raise every now and then concerns about uh, Chinese labor practices and whatnot. 
Um, but certainly, uh, I, saw, I mean, the fact that uh, BRICS uh, in the BRICS grouping, uh, South Africa is the representative of such of the uh, African continent says something about China's um, uh, uh, strategic interest in South Africa in terms of its greater presence within the African continent. I mean, there, there's uh, there's been debate as to uh, I've heard both stories. Both both uh, China was uh, lobbying for uh, South Africa to join because they felt you could never break grouping with art an African country and South Africa to be it. I've also heard the opposite that South Africa was seriously lobbying China so that it could get a plate at the table. Uh, uh, of the BRICS grouping, but certainly they they uh, need each other for different reasons. I mean, South Africa, you can see in this case, would be using China to help get greater visibility on these uh, on these global forums. And South Africa has always sort of uh, liked to hold itself uh, its foreign policy as one which punches above its weight and uh, sort of is a, rep- a sort of mid-level hegemon in representing the African continent, or at least sort of half of the African continent. Uh, in terms of speaking on behalf of Africa. So definitely uh, it uses China in that regard. Um, and, um, yeah, I think uh, the uh, uh, China as well, uh, because of South Africa's infrastructure, uh, its relatively uh, good legal system and financial system, um, that uh, it's more attractive for Chinese investors, at least at that sort of service level industry to invest. I mean, what's, uh, one thing that's quite interesting is uh, while Chinese infrastructure um, companies are very big on the African continent, not so much in South Africa because we there's a lot of companies there that do that already. It's more in the sort of high-level sectors, although there is uh, things like Hisense is uh, setting up manufacturing uh, branches here. Uh, the, the, uh, I mean, the major problem again here is actually one of the big problems is uh, labor. Um, and uh, 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 the, the strength of the unions here, it's just not attractive uh, for Chinese companies in terms of setting up manufacturing. And in the mining sector, of course, we have notorious problems in the mining sector too with labor. Uh, and so th- th- this is certainly one of the, the limitations um, of, of of Chinese investing. I mean, another thing is uh, for uh, at least at a high level, Chinese executives and whatnot coming to live in Africa, it's, South Africa is probably the most attractive place for them to live, as is uh, perhaps Hong Kong for, for uh, foreign expats going to China. Sorry to interrupt you. Um, speaking mm, no, about no. Hong Kong, um, like, do, do you foresee that, like, how, how, what role do you foresee Taiwan? you know, kind of taking on in the future in, in, in relation to China. Um, obviously, you know, kind of China, China's very heavy, uh, Taiwan is heavily invested in China and China's heavily invested in Taiwan. Um, and is there a role for Taiwan to play in facilitating South African China investment or is all of that energy like now landing in Hong Kong? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I was in Taiwan last year. I mean, I used to live there for years, and I, I went back recently, and they've got a whole strategy has changed. They, they're now sort of aggressively marketing themselves as a new sort of Hong Kong, so where it can function as a kind of hub for multinational companies, uh, and then they will serve as a conduit into the mainland uh, in terms of doing business, and ideas that the environment the environment's better there, uh, for Western investments, and then they can help you go into China. Now, of course, in that sense, I'd be competing with the likes of Hong Kong and Singapore, and um, I'm not so sure how uh, well they will uh, do in that regard. Um, but, uh, I mean, as you've seen China's uh, economic impact in South Africa grow, Taiwan has shrunk uh, dramatically. Um, 
And there's not, uh, from what I can tell, that much cooperation between, say, uh, Taiwanese and uh, Chinese companies within South Africa. But at the same time, there's not this real harsh sense of competition or the sense that the Chinese government is is pressuring South African companies not to do business with Taiwan. It's almost like these two parallel uh, economies going on. And I, I think uh, part of the, uh, the Taiwan-South Africa relationship has been uh, just this uh, a continuation, in a sense, of the sorts of industries that were set up in apartheid. I mean, most Taiwanese have left South Africa now. So uh, in the 1990s, at its apex, there were about 50,000 Taiwanese um, uh, living in uh, South Africa. And today, I think the number is at about 5,000 or so. So most of them have left. Uh, but the reasons, uh, and this is also quite interesting, why they've left is was not because it had nothing to do really with the ANC government switching uh, political affiliation. What it had to do with was the fact that the unions got stronger and crime increased. So most Taiwanese that we spoke to said that that's why they'd left and were going to invest elsewhere where they could have a decent quality of life. I think a lot of the manufacturing sector, which the Taiwanese were involved in textiles and that sort of thing, went into Southeast Asia, actually. Um, and and so this, uh, whereas uh, within China, you have a, had a much larger population, uh, probably less averse to risk and also a lot of um, sort of small traders and that sort of level of invest uh, of, of migrants coming to South Africa, which you didn't see in the Taiwanese level. The Taiwanese level, Taiwanese level was more sort of mid-level manufacturing types. And so you had a sort of different kind of investment coming in uh, to uh, uh, South Africa. Um, with regards to Taiwan, um, you know, when, when South Africa switched allegiance or from the mid-90s to the end of the 90s, when this was an ongoing debate as to what South Africa should do, it was interesting that their main concern with not alienating China was that they didn't want to lose their investment, their foothold in Hong Kong. Uh, it was Hong Kong which was the focus of, 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 of which fell in favor of sort of making better relationships with China, not the Chinese mainland. And that sort of tells, gives you an idea of how quickly China from the mid-90s to now has become a global economic presence because at that point it wasn't really on the radar of South African decision makers that it was China that we needed to get into because China was just sort of, it was still in that uh, formative process of becoming the sort of giant it is today. Whereas today, of course, it, South Africa, as with pretty much every country in the world, can't afford to uh, ignore China now economically. And so uh, 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 that's sort of become a fortuitous thing in the long run is that as South Africa uh, uh, changed from an apartheid to a democratic state, it was pretty much at the same time when China was starting to become a global economic giant. And these two things sort of dovetail with each other. So obviously it's one of the most important diplomatic relationships that South Africa has, uh, not only with with China, but also with Hong Kong and Taiwan. It's a very complicated relationship. And the paper that uh, that Ross Anthony worked on with Sven Grimm and Yiju Kim, uh, with also Robert Atwell and Xin Xiao, uh, is a fascinating history of not only South Africa's relationship, but also the one-child policy, uh, the one-China policy, not the one-child policy, that's another podcast, Kobus, uh, the one-China <laughs> policy. Uh, and it's it's a very complicated history, but at the same time, you know, critically important to understand both in terms of China's total engagement in Africa because of its importance uh, of its investments in South Africa and also the politics of it. So it's a very complicated relationship. Uh, Ross, thank you so much for joining us again on the show and helping us understand uh, some of the kind of the foundational aspects of this. 
Sure, my pleasure. What is the best way, if people want to follow what uh, the Center for Chinese Studies is doing, what's the best way that they can stay in touch with the research and some of the reports that you're putting out? Uh, well, the best way of presence, I think, is just to visit our website. That's uh, uh, ccs.org, um, Center for Chinese Studies, Stellenbosch University. And uh, we've got everything on there. If you just click on our research uh, cursor, it gives you all the various uh, reports and papers and policy briefs and commentaries and everything we put out. And they also, uh, Stellenbosch also puts out a wonderful weekly email newsletter that has a summary of some of the top stories of the week and some of the research papers that are coming out of the Center for Chinese Studies. So you can sign up for that as well at ccs.org.za. Hey, Kobus, if people want to follow what you're doing, what's the best way that they can stay in touch with you? You'll see me on our Facebook page. It's facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Um, and I put my name in brackets when I comment on anything. And also, I'm on Twitter at Stadenesque. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. Kelpus, have you noticed that the comments on our page have gone down dramatically in the past few yes. weeks? And I don't know yes, what's going on. So I would love for people to kind of get more engaged in the page and to ask questions or to kind of share your opinions, share your thoughts. Uh, we love to debate, but if nobody posts anything, we can't get into any kind of discussion. So maybe, Kobus, you and I will have to start talking to each other again. Uh, but uh, once again, that's Facebook.com slash China Africa Project. There's 191,000 people. So just a few of you is all we're asking for for a couple comments. Uh, but uh, we love to have the discussion and the interaction. And also a lot of discussion going on over at Twitter. You can follow me there at E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. E -O -L -A -N -D -E -R. I'm tweeting the top China and Africa headlines almost every day. Uh, and of course, if you want to follow this podcast, the best way to do it is to look us up on iTunes. Just look for China Africa Project. So we'll be back again very soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Until then, thank you so much for listening.